You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, I hope you have picked up this morning how very proud we are of our university students uh, here at University Presbyterian Church. Our students model for us uh, the life of coming to faith, of interacting with open minds with the truth and discovering who Jesus Christ is. And then not only that he loves us and has grace for us, but that he sends us out into the world with that same love and grace uh, to share. All day, our uh, student deputies are going to be with us here and uh, you'll have an opportunity. I hope you'll take advantage of it to greet them and say hello. I had a chance to meet this morning a young man named Trey Bethlehem. A nice chat with them until I realized that the second word on the name tag is where they're going and not the last name. So uh, be advised. Uh, But in a sense, we all are deputized. Uh, We're deputy dogs. Someone has put a badge on you and said, you go as a representative of the great high king. And we're talking about this this morning as Jacob comes and wrestles for a living. So we too realize we're in the same uh, match right there beside him. Well, I would ask you, what if Warren Buffett were to call you tomorrow morning? See that on the caller ID, Warren Buffett, would you take the call? And you, you do, and he says, you know what I'd love to do? I'd love to have lunch with you tomorrow. And, and I'd love to, just to hear a little bit about your work, your career, and, and see if together we might uh, refine your concept of what success might look like for you. What do you think? Would you take the lunch with Warren? Well, you know, if you ask an ancient Israelite the same question, what, what if Warren Buffett called you and invited you to lunch? Uh, they wouldn't even know who Warren is. Uh, But if Jacob, the son of Isaac, were to call on their cell phone and ask for an hour of conversation and lunch to talk about their sense of success, ten out of ten times, Jacob has got himself a lunch. And the reason for that is that I think Jacob would have been the Warren Buffett of ancient Israel. Why do I say that? Remember, Israel uh, is a a nation of shepherds. That's the industry. The the, the main industry is shepherding, tending the flocks. And and here's a guy, as we're reading about in this series, Jacob, who uh, stumbles into town, Haran, without a hank of wool in his hand. But when he leaves some 20 years later, he rolls out driving a chauffeured camel the chief shareholder and CEO of Livestock.com. Right? He's got lunches as far as the eye can see. Because every Israelite looks at him and goes, Wow, Jacob, how did you do that? Right? I mean, there are institutes in his name and chairs that are endowed and seminars all over the place, paperbacks in every airport bookstore. You know, the question for an Israelite is, if, you know, if I could understand... Jacob, how did you do it? Maybe then I could answer the question, how do you do it? If I could answer the question, how do you do it? Maybe I can answer the question, how will I do it? How will my uh, life, how will the story of my work and career be like Jacob's story, a story of success? Well, in our text this morning... Jacob actually answers this question 
and does so directly. Would you give him a few minutes of your time this morning to listen in to what Jacob wants to say to you about your work, about your career? And we get that perspective here in our text of Genesis 31, verses 1 through 9, which you'll find on page 24 of the Pew Bible. You're welcome to use. I would invite you to pull that out, open that up, uh, and let's stand together and read this text out loud. Genesis chapter 31, verses 1 through 9. And then when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. He has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him as favorably as he did before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your ancestors and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me as favorably as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock board speckled. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. We get the story of Jacob's rise to success and wealth uh, twice, actually. Uh, Twice, the narrator provides insight. Um, Once, I say, from the bleachers, from a distance, and secondly, uh, from up close on the field. So two scenes back to back. And the first is scene one, success from the bleachers. What it looks like from an outside perspective. From a distance, admiring eyes from the crowd, from the fans who look and watch Jacob. Uh, From a distance, we don't really know what success is all about. We have our guesses. We have our definition. We really don't know what it feels like. We don't know how important it is, but we're fascinated with it. and We're drawn to it. And we look with wonder at Jacob. We say, you know, that's how I want my life to go also. And so the first thing we ask ourselves about is what motivations uh, might we bring for work, for our work, if we're to live into success? Well, we we uh, we do well to pay attention to Jacob's motivations. And the story begins really with a job interview back in chapter 30, verse 25. This is before the text that we just read. Jacob and Laban, his uncle, are engaged in a negotiation Back and forth they go. Laban is making this offer. You see, uh, he's trying to extend Jacob's work experience with him. He's trying to extend his employment with him. Jacob has been with Laban for 14 years. And now uh, he wants to leave. And Laban's not interested in that. So he says, look, uh, let's make a deal here. 
The first thing we notice about Jacob's motivations for work is he's not motivated. Apparently, he doesn't want to work and we like him already. Right. I mean, you know, give me a choice between being independently wealthy and working. And I'm not even going to take a second to think about that. My mom tells me when she dies and is reincarnated and comes back to life, she wants to come back as a Hinman male, by the way. Uh, so, you know, work is just something we don't actually, you know, reach out to and embrace. And neither does Jacob. He goes, no, thanks, Laban. I'm doing pretty well. I'm out of here. Jacob, uh, uh, let me ask you what it would take to keep you here. I mean, you name the price. And, and Jacob goes, no, 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 Laban, I don't want anything you have to offer me. And then essentially he says, OK, I'll take the job. And you go, what? What? And Laban's beginning to think, I think this guy is a sucker. Why does Jacob change his mind? You can read the text yourself later on today. What I notice is that the narrator says nothing. There's an absolute blank right there. We don't know why he changes his mind. We don't know. And I I think this forces us to guess at Jacob's work motivation. And so I'm the preacher today, so I get to tell you what my guess is as to what really motivates Jacob. But I know that if I do that, I'm going to get 12 right answers in the narthex later on. So let me list some possible get, uh, motivations. And then you, hopefully you'll find one in there that you agree with. Uh, the first one is this money. Do you think do you think maybe Jacob is motivated by money? Turns out he's been working 14 years and yes, he's gotten uh, a wife. In fact, he got more wife than he wanted. There are two now, but not a penny more out of Laban. So he's absolutely empty pocketed pocketed and he's uh, uh, wanting to leave uh, on a trip needs money he's broke that's a good reason to work and number two um, how about benevolence jacob even tells us here at 30 30 that he would like to provide for his own household and that one strikes us with a bit more nobility to provide for his household to take um, the wealth generated by my work and share it with other people who are in need and it seems that maybe jacob has that motivation uh, three, status. How about this one? Uh, I doubt that the women in Jacob's time, and I'm not saying anything about the women in our time, would be terribly attracted to a man who's got not a cent to his name. And I, and I think if Jacob were to think about it, he might suspect, you know, if I left in the middle of the night, as he will do later and sneak away from Laban, I'm going to have to go alone because I don't think Rachel and Leah and all of our children are going to follow me. You see, for uh, Jacob to be a man with absolutely no uh, means is to be a man with no social status whatsoever and nothing to offer his, his family by way of a community or social status. So perhaps this is why he works. Or four, how about enjoyment? Enjoyment. Uh, maybe Jacob just loves hanging out with sheep and goats. I have a little trouble with this one myself, but it's very possible. We are told earlier in the narrative that, that he is a quiet man who enjoys living in tents. And maybe he thinks to himself, I could use a little bit more fresh air. How about six years with sheep and goats? It could be that he works because of enjoyment. Five, how about fear? Wait a minute. Come to think of it. If I leave Laban now and I go back to Canaan, I'm sure to run into my brother. Esau, that one whom I've uh, ripped off again and again and again. And last time I left, Esau was stinking mad, uh, breathing murderous threats against me. Maybe I'm better off just holding down this job 
and just staying here for the sake of security. Six. How about vindication? Oh, yeah. Revenge is sweet. I've been slaving for this guy for 14 years. He has just ripped me off and he has finally met his match. A con man to con the best of them. And there'll be nothing sweeter than to be spectacularly successful right underneath the nose of my uncle Laban. Right? You've got co-workers. You know how this works. Yeah, revenge, vindication. What a motive to work. And then my final guess, number seven, faith. What if, what if these couple of times that God has pierced through the heart of Jacob and spoken something directly to him. But what if he's beginning to believe something of that stuff? And he says, you know, I, I don't know what this job is really all about. It feels kind of like I'm trapped. But I'm willing to believe that this God who speaks to me might just have a plan and a purpose for my work. So I'll stay. Keep at it for a little while longer. Well, I don't know. Can you find one in this list that you think is maybe motivating Jacob? Money, benevolence, status, enjoyment, fear, vindication or faith? You know, I, I don't know which one it is myself. I can't decide. In fact, I can't even rule one out. Be happy to take one off the list. And I begin to think, gee, all of those motivations, I see them all in Jacob. And I begin to wonder if I've discovered anything at all about Jacob. Uh, so much as I've discovered something more about myself. Because I see all of these motivations in my own work as well. Perhaps this is what the narrator is trying to accomplish. Perhaps he has deliberately blanked this so that from a distance we project all of our own motivations, both the noble and the absolutely lousy ones, onto this character who seems destined for success. And when I see some of the less noble ones in Jacob and realize they are mine as well, it's not so much that I'm embarrassed. It's that I wonder, maybe there's something wrong. Maybe there's something wrong with me and the way I approach work. Or maybe there's something wrong with my job. Just have the wrong one, perhaps. I mean, don't you think I ought to be able to spring out of bed in this morning and say, I just can't wait to get out there and get me some heavy lifting, right? Don't you think you ought to be able to ask yourself in the morning, you know, I am so excited about this job, I would pay somebody else to do it. Don't you think you ought to be able to say, uh, I'm so glad that I'm taking the bus to work today because I'm going to change the world. Don't you think I got to be able to look at my job and say, you know, when I do this kind of work, I feel the fulfillment of an inner destiny that's just mine and mine alone. And when I do it, I feel God's a pleasure. Don't you think you ought to bring to your work all the conviction and zeal and authority that a biblical character brings to their work, right? And then, oh yeah, there's Jacob. And I'm not all that different from him, after all, am I? These are the motivations that we bring to our work. Now let's look at the methodology of successful work. Because when we look at Jacob, we look at what he actually does, we go, wow, man, this guy has got it going. This guy is like the LeBron James, you know, of Israel. 
You just want to watch him in slow motion going up to the net. You're going, look at what he's doing. That is so cool. Takes your breath away, right? And what does he do? Uh, if you don't know the story, let me just review it with you. Um, back to this negotiation with Laban. As I say, he takes the job, but he says, Laban, I don't want your stinking money. You just keep it in your pocket. I'm going to do this one for me. I'm not going to take any, any money from you. No salary. Now, keep in mind, a shepherd at this time, historians tell us, would usually get about 20% wage of the take on the flock. Now, what he says is, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to, from this day forward, every mutant sheep or goat that's born to your flock, I'll skim away and make that mine. Every a lamb that's not woolly white, but that's black, and every goat that's not rich, dark brown or black, that's spotted, spotted, mottled or, or striped, I'll take those for myself. And Laban's going, man, this just confirms this guy is a total egghead sucker. I mean, because everybody knows that the rate of incidence of these kinds of births is much lower than 20 percent. And Laban thinks, I'm just going to totally rip him off this time because he's going to take all the venture capital out of the deal right from the beginning. He's going to have his sons go and comb through the flock and take all the ones that are already uh, speckled or, or, or the sheep that are dark and move them off three days away. And the reader's going, oh, no, what's going to happen to Jacob? And, and but Jacob's just crystal cool and calm. And he goes, this is even better now. I don't have anybody watching what I am about to do. And there he goes out into the wilderness with Laban's goats and sheep. And he takes branches from trees, poplar, almond, and pain, cuts them off. And he, he, he runs stripes, peels the bark away and puts then these as rods in the water trough of the animals. And he's thinking, so what's going to happen is the black goats are going to come to drink water during the mating season, and they're going to see striped rods. And that visual stimulus is going to provoke them to give birth to spotted and speckled goats. And and Israel's going, wow, I never knew that. And and then he goes, I got to do something else because I don't think that's going to work with the lambs. Ah. I'll take Laban's black goats, and when the sheep are in heat, I'm going to put the black goats, I'm going to parade them right in front of the white sheep, and they're going to breed black lambs, because they're going to see it right in front of them. And you go, really? But it works. That's the striking thing. And so you and I, when we ask the question, how did Jacob do that? What we mean is, how did Jacob do that? And it's not just because we're post-enlightenment skeptics and we know something about DNA. Because any Israelite, in generations after Jacob, they know this doesn't work. Right? You just have to be a nine-year-old shepherd boy to run out and try this. Because you heard the story in Sunday school class and you realize, hey, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. And worse than that, this is what historians and theologians call today sympathetic magic. Jacob is engaging in something that the Bible absolutely forbids. It's sorcery. And the Israelite will know it's wrong. It doesn't work. And God would never get within a mile of it. And yet it works. How did Jacob do that? And again, no help whatsoever from the narrator. 
So we scratch our heads, looking from a distance, the bleachers trying to get insights for our own success, and the narrator just leaves us cold and empty. He leaves us with these kinds of questions. I think the narrator is actually asking us questions. Questions like, what do you think success really is? And why are you so fascinated with success? And what methods and techniques are really a part of your life on a daily basis because you are pursuing your idea of success? Uncomfortable questions, I think. But, thankfully, the narrator doesn't leave us long in this discomfort, but leads us now to scene two. That was success from the bleachers, from a distance. And now in scene two, we see the same story, but up close through the eyes of Jacob himself. You see, Jacob is going to call his wives, Leah and Rachel, out of the bleachers. He sends for them and they come down to the field and he's going to speak to them directly. What success has been. So this is scene two, success on the field. Now, the paradigm of success for Israel will speak for himself. But what strikes us immediately, and now we're in chapter 31, the text we read and, and following, what strikes us immediately is that he says nothing about motivation. And there's absolutely nothing here about methodology. Nothing whatsoever. As though, in Jacob's mind, these two things were thoroughly irrelevant. No, he's virtually on his knees begging his wives to believe that what he has done and why he has done it is not the real thing. The real thing is that there is a God in my life who is at work in me and at work through me. He begs them to see that. Verse 9, he says, I I think it's God who has taken all this wealth and, and, and given it to me. And he tells them a story that's now familiar to us. If we've been reading all along, a story of his dream that he had. Uh, two dreams, actually. He says, uh, one dream, probably just before he begins this uh, breeding method, he says, I, I, I saw in a dream a speckled goats. I didn't know what it meant. But I, then I heard God's voice saying, Jacob, I'm with you. And, and then this voice said, Jacob, I'm the God of Bethel. Oh, I remember Bethel. I'd been there before. I had a dream there before. And, and there was a ladder. And it clearly, what this ladder was all about was to convince me that the business of heaven was coming down, coming down to earth, and it was becoming the business of earth. The, the ways of God were coming into the work of man, woman. They're becoming our ways and our work. And he will... He will finally even go further than this in chapter 31, verse 42, when he's saying goodbye to Laban. He says, Laban, if it weren't for God, I'd be leaving right now with empty hands, with nothing. He says, but Laban, I have come to know that God is on my side. That's the phrase he uses in the New American Standard Bible translates it that God is for me. That's rather strong language, don't you think? I mean, we like Jacob well enough, but we've also gotten to know Jacob enough to know. He mixes his charm with a lot of sleaze. And and is this really 
someone that God would say, I'm going to get on his team. I kind of like what he stands for. But here he's convinced God is for me. And that's what this has all been about, Laban, he says. Well, how could God be on Jacob's side? You say, he's no better than I am. And maybe that's exactly the point. We look at the characters in this story. First, Laban. Take Laban. I mean, Laban comes to Jacob and he goes, hey, Jacob, this is back in chapter 30. I think God is blessing me. Uh, and you, you go, well, how do you know that? Well, Laban says, I've been doing a little divination. You know, okay, that's sorcery again, witchcraft. It's forbidden to Israelites. He goes, I've been doing some divination and the Lord has told me. As long as I'm interacting with you, he's going to bless me. And the reader goes, I, I don't know if I should take Laban seriously. Is he lying? Is he just buttering up Jacob? But I do know this, what he's meddling with, if he is telling the truth, is wrong. And yet he knows what's right, that God is, in fact, blessing Laban, that God is for Laban. And then you take Jacob and he says to his wives, I I think God is blessing me. And you go, with all the screwy motivations, the revenge and the scheming and the con artistry, what with your weird techniques, the sympathetic magic, uh, God's not a part of that, is he? And you begin to wonder, when Laban waves his Ouija boards at God and when Jacob waves his funny striped rods at God, maybe they're just doing what we're doing when we wave before God the same sorts of things in our management books. Our resumes, our seminar notes, our negotiation techniques, our 10 easy steps for successful parenting, our one minute marriage builders. And God is looking at all that and he's going, whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever you, you, you know, if that seems to be the way to do it, you, you, fine. But there's something so much more profound at work in this story. And it's God himself. It's not as though these two don't need to repent. It's not as though God God doesn't want them or us to have a deeper participation with him, to draw near to him as he's drawn near to us. And yet, what we hear on the field, what we hear when Jacob speaks for himself, is that the tipping point of any life is not your capacity, but the reliability of God's promise. That's what makes it happen. The reliability of a God who says, I have a promise for this world to make everything that's wrong right. And I'm going to do it right now through these people. I'm not going to wait until they get their motivations and methodologies right. I am committed to them today. And my promise is at work. Jacob's waking up to this. He, he, He pleads the story, I think, of Jesus Christ in the ears of his wife, wives. Don't you hear the echo of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8 says, you know, it's hard to believe that anybody would ever give their life for a religious person. You can kind of conceive where someone would give their life for a good person, someone truly good. But you know what God has done? God has proved his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gives his life for us. He lives through us. He is for us. 
so that today he's for us in worship. This week he'll be for us in our work, whatever it is that we do. In that sense, you and I are all deputies. We have been deputized by the great king to be about the fulfillment of his promise for this creation. Think of that. As we go to our various places around the city of Seattle, God, through our work, is fulfilling his promises. Well, Jacob wants his wives and us to know that there's a much more important goal in life than success. And that goal is faithfulness to a faithful God. Let's pray. God, you don't call us to much. Just to believe that you're with us. That in Jesus Christ, you are for us. And that you are sending us out to be people, agents of change in this world. Because you are a great God with a great promise. A promise of grace for us and grace for this creation. In that, we rejoice. We add our prayers to what's already been offered for our deputies. But uh, we pray that you would let us know the nature of our deputation as well. And the faithfulness of the God who makes it so. In his name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.